Kathy and I drove up Wednesday night so that our granddaughters could babysit us. <laughs> Honestly, it's been more that way. But we were going somewhere and I turned around and looked at them in the back seat and I said, you, you don't even know that you're young because I'm old now. And when I was that age, I didn't know I was young. They'll find out someday. But I've seen some things over the years. I counted, uh, if I've counted right, I've been alive through 14 presidents. And uh, what we have in our nation at present is, well, it's scary. It's disturbing. I mean, I was around in the 60s and all the counterculture and the Vietnam protests and stuff and the civil rights struggles. That was scary to me as a kid, but I'll tell you, I just, I, I wonder where we're going, people. And I wonder, what does Yahweh think when he looks at our nation? What does he think? What does Yahweh think when he looks at our worship? We're going to be looking a bit through the book of Micah. And I've entitled this message, From Tragedy to Triumph. <coughs> Micah begins with severe prophecies concerning Israel and Judah. He is, was a contemporary of Isaiah. And we know from history that there were going to be some very hard times in store for God's people. They are going to have to endure great hardships. And even though that was true, in all of it, there's hope. God created man in his own image, and we as God's image bearers in the world have failed to do our job. And it is because of our problem of sin. That's the source of our problems. That was the source of Israel's problems. It's why the Son of God did what he did. Because of sin. But as Micah declares that God is not pleased with the conduct of Israel and Judah. As he watches from heaven, he watches what goes on, and he takes note. Micah chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 says this, 
Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances, with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. As God looked at the business world in Israel and Judah, he was not pleased. He says to the rich man, do you still possess the wealth that you have gained by unrighteous means? And to the businessman, do you still have those fake standards of measures that have helped make you rich? It's not just business as usual to the Lord. We might call it that, but that's just business. But God hates cheating. Deuteronomy 25, verse 13 says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. Yahweh was not pleased with the way the courts dispensed justice. I wonder, what does he think of our courts? Do we dispense justice? In Micah chapter 2, verse 2. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away so they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. You remember the story of uh, Naboth had a vineyard and uh, he may have coveted it. And Jezebel said, don't pout, I'll get it for you. And she did. But it took the death of an innocent man to get it. All in power in Israel and Judah were censured by the Lord in Micah's letter. And he says in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward bribes, and the priests thereof teach for hire, the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. We heard a bit this morning about a message from Jesus that was not received by the populace. God sent his prophets to Israel to warn them, and they turned a deaf ear to them. And they, I think, Rather than listen, they began to filter it through their own logic, how they saw things. We're God's people. Abraham was our father. 
Look up on Mount Moriah. What do you see? That's his house. That's the Lord of the universe house. It's here. This is where he said he would put his name. Now, how is it these prophets say that he's going to take that away? Do you really think so? My daughter and my son-in-law have been touring the capital of our nation. I wonder what we would think if some prophet would get up and say, see that capitol building over there? See that White House? Great historical places. It's all going to be torn down. Oh, that can't happen. We're Americans. I wonder what we would say if someone would give us a message like that. Now, if you would turn your attention to the seventh chapter of Micah. And you see a little bit of the mindset of the prophet. You know, maybe sometimes we don't quite appreciate the difficulty that it would have been to bring a message from God to people like this. But it wasn't easy. Micah says in chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me! For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, the great gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. Prince asketh, the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. It gives you the idea of these different parties twisting together a plot, as it were, making a rope. They wrap it up. It's business. The best of them is as a briar, the most upright and sharper than a thorn edge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. You can't get in contact with a briar patch and not be unscathed. If you touch a thorn hedge, you will know it. In this four verses, it seems that Micah is hungry for fellowship with others who are also people of faith, and he can't find any. The picture is of a harvested vineyard, a harvested field, and it has been gleaned and gleaned, and there's really nothing left. As Micah looks out for another person of faith, he sees no one who fits, and he feels alone. Alone is a hard thing to feel.
like Elijah after his great victory at Mount Carmel. And fleeing in fear from Jezebel, he felt alone. No one left. I'm the only one. David felt alone when his people turned against him there at Ziklag. He had no one to turn to but his own, his own God. The expression, woe is me, as it occurs in verse 1, is only found one other place in the Old Testament, and that is in Job chapter 15, or chapter 5, or 10, verse 15. If I be wicked, woe unto me. We know what kind of pressure Job was under, Micah's under similar hardship. He's stressed. Can't find any who is like-minded. Psalm 12 and verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. In Isaiah 57 and verse 1. The righteous perish, no man layeth it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Now, God comes to Mike and he says, I have a, I have a case against my people. I have a grievance. Micah chapter 6 and verse 1. Hear now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Right. Assemble the witnesses. Court is in session. And God says, I have a grievance. And then... In my mind, this is unexpected. In my mind, I picture Yahweh censuring them and condemning them and judging them. But hear what it says in verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Do you see what God did there? He went from being the plaintiff to the defendant. We can find hope in what Yahweh says here. He goes on, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Jephthah to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. I took care of you. I saved you. I redeemed you. What must have been the mood in Israel on that great day when they walked out of Egypt 
never to go back. Never to go back. He's calling Israel to assess their behavior. What has caused the separation between them was clearly not because God had not kept up his promises, had not uh, kept his end of the bargain. But the sins of the people had come between them. And yet he doesn't condemn them. He says, why has your love died for me? Jeremiah 2 and verse 2. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, and when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not so. They would have been able to lift up their eyes on that day and behold the pillar of the cloud as it led them out of Egypt. They would have been able to see that pillar of fire at night. And they would have been able to say, I'm free because of him. Because all of them knew it wasn't by their power that they were free. What have I done to you? I remember when you loved me. When you, I led you where there was nothing and you said I'll follow you. All that you say to me I will do. Isaiah chapter 59, 1 through 4. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities had separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. You ever find yourself there? I felt like that. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity, speak lies, conceive mischief, and bring forth iniquity. Even now, as Yahweh looks from heaven, he is storing up wrath. And we image bearers have been sinning against him for thousands of years, defiantly and ignorantly as well. We have committed sin and we have omitted to do good. And he doesn't forget.
Micah's time, the walls of Jerusalem were slated for destruction. And the temple that was standing at that time would not stand forever. Not only is it gone, the one that replaced it basically is gone too. God promised to wipe the land clean, and he did. They were going to be expelled from their heritage. And God, because they had problems with sin, began to treat them as he treated their enemies. Because in effect, they became his enemies by doing just exactly what God's enemies were doing. But there's yet hope. Back to uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 11. In the day that thy walls are to be built, other versions have a day of building for thy walls. In that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. There's going to be a day where the walls of Jerusalem are going to be rebuilt and instead of the neighboring nations hating Israel, they are going to flow into Israel. Instead of making a difference, they are going to assimilate the behaviors of Israel. They are going to desire to learn the law of God and deserve it. This is kingdom language. There is a kingdom to come. And because there's a kingdom to come, we have hope. Assyria to the fortress, from Assyria to Egypt, the two mightiest empires during Micah's time are going to fall in line with Yahweh. But there's going to have to be a lot of things happen. Notwithstanding, verse 13, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. Those bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. And a lot of God's image bearers are going to die because of sin. And he will avenge himself. When the king of kings comes to reign, it's going to be a very bloody day. Maybe that's why John wrote like he did, even so, come Lord Jesus. But blessings are in store for Yahweh's people. Verse 14, feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, 
in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Three places mentioned that had rich pasture land and farmland. And we're talking security. We're talking plenty. We're talking blessings. We're talking the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see, be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. When the forces that will be marshaled against the Messiah see him, because I guess every eye will see him, they are going to be ashamed. They shall lay their hand upon their mouths. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall be humble. They shall move out of their holes like the worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. There's hope. And all the hope that we have is found bound up in Micah 5 2. Many of you probably can quote that verse or almost quote it. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old. From everlasting. There's our hope. There's our triumph. And then as we begin to wrap this up, who is like a God unto thee? Micah asks a rhetorical question that pardoneth iniquity. And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he remained. Retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Who is a God like God? Who else can forgive sin? You know that Pharisee had it right. When they let down the man through the ceiling. And Jesus looks at him and says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And they're like, wait a minute. Who can forgive sin but God? Who is a God that will deal with the transgressions of his people? Because he doesn't want to be angry with them forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. That last clause of verse 18. And that word mercy in Hebrew is kesed. And it's kind of like in the Beatitudes where the Beatitudes open up with blessed. And you've probably heard preachers say something like, you know, there's not one good English word that really captures the scope 
of that word blessed. There's not one English word that captures the scope of kesed as mercy. It's steadfast love. It's covenantal. It looks back toward the promises that God made to Abraham, to David, to Israel. And he delights in mercy. I can't find the scripture that says that he delights in wrath. Yes, he does exercise it. But he does not delight in it like he does mercy. God would rather forgive than condemn. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. That's that mercy. That word kissed is found 241 times in the Old Testament, 127 times in the Psalms alone. And notice, as I read, the I wills and, and, and he wills. He will turn again. He will have compassion. He will subdue. And thou wilt cast all their sins in the depths of sea. Thou wilt perform the truth. To Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. It is his work. It is his doing. In the image of casting sins into the depths of the sea, that again is somewhat of a Moses connection. He already had hinted about, he gave them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And they sang a song when Pharaoh's army was drowned. And if you want to make Pharaoh's army a metaphor for death, I don't think that's too far off. The observer would have looked at that situation and said, well, those people got out of Egypt just to be killed. Because they had the Red Sea on their one side and they had Pharaoh's chariots and army on the other. Where could they go? But he overthrew the army and drowned them in the depths of the sea, just like it says in verse 19. But you know what? It was a lot more personal than that. That's not what dealt with sins. No. He became flesh. And I don't know how, but God loaded the sins of his people onto the shoulders of his son. And he became both priest and offering. He offered himself. And the blood that streamed down from him. Brother Willie used to say, every drop cried, innocent, innocent, innocent. In his life, 
He ended his life so that he might kill sin. And not only did he kill sin, he killed death. It is swallowed up in victory, Paul says. And any, even at this late date, even though it's 2022, even as we live in a country that seems to be upside down about everything, anyone who will believe on him, who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who will no longer bear their burden of sin, who will have faith enough to say, you said if I called on you, you would in no wise cast me out. He cannot lie. Then you will be a partaker of those coming up promises made so long ago. You'll be like Abraham. You, were, you saw his day and were glad. And you will be one of his. And he will clothe you in righteousness. And he will wrap his arms around you and say, Thou 